0: Welcome, everyone, to RDI's inaugural Winter Is Here podcast. So as I'm sure all of our listeners know, Vladimir Putin has launched an absolutely brutal invasion of Ukraine, waging an utterly unprovoked war of aggression. And this invasion has woken up the world to the fact that we are, in fact, in a war between tyranny and democracy. This is something that's been going on for a while, but it's something that I think much of the free world has chosen to ignore and today we can ignore it no longer. Winter has arrived, and now it's time for us to fight. So this podcast will be a series of episodes where we talk about what's happening in this battle and how we can win. And so with that, I'd like to welcome our two guests, my co-host, Gary Kasparov, chairman of the Renew Democracy Initiative, former world chess champion, and a good friend, and one of RDI's board members, Lieutenant Colonel retired Alexander Vindman, who famously testified in President Trump's first impeachment hearings and served on the national security staff with a focus on Ukraine. So welcome, Alex and Gary. Thanks. Thank you. So Gary, I wonder if we can start with the name of the podcast, right? So we're calling the podcast Winter is Here, partially inspired by your book, uh, Winter is Coming. Now, seven years have passed since you published that book. Can you tell us a little bit about kind of what were some of your key theses for the book in 2015 and what has changed over the last seven years?
1: Uh, Thank you for reminding our audience about the book, which is very popular these days. It's um, standing, I think it's number one in current affairs, which doesn't happen with the book published seven years ago. But I think you have to also mention the subtitle of the book, which uh, pushed it to the top of um, public attention. Why Vladimir Putin and the enemies of the free world must be stopped. And I remember that when I introduced this concept to the publisher, Public Affairs, they were not so sure about the title, uh, Winter's Coming, because obviously, you know, it um, was connected to the Games of Thrones. But they said, OK, we can, we can live with that. But they were adamant about the subtitle, because that was too Cold War, too Fox News, they said how can we, you know, just avoid being so aggressive because the reminiscences of the Cold War may not do well with our with our readership. And I said, no, it is Cold War because winter is coming. And uh, while they accepted, you know, my arguments, uh, it seemed to me that the critics and, and even the public at large was very skeptical. Their reviews about the book in New York Times, Washington Post, uh, they were not complimentary, at least saying. There were a couple of good reviews, obviously, but I think the public was not ready to to hear these warnings. And uh, it wasn't my first warning. And many others, like my late friend and colleague, um, Boris Nemtsov, uh, had been warning over years that while Putin was our problem in Russia, eventually it would be everybody's problem. And uh, now, all of a sudden, it's trending because Putin had invaded Ukraine. And I think it's, um, it's, it's probably... Worse, looking into the future now and and also trying to uh, to to deal with current tragic situation, rather than you know looking back because we made mistakes. We, as I say, was as the representative of the, of the free world, but now I'm not interested in in, in repeating "I told you so." Uh, rather than you know, what can we do now based on the past experience? And I think the real challenge today is that even despite the all you know this this obvious threat coming from Putin and. Uh, his insatiable appetite for uh, for foreign aggression, there's there's still room for, as many politicians believe in the free world, for maneuver, for just, you know, finding compromise. And I think that's what we should convince, our goal is this this podcast, to convince our listeners that there's no compromise. This is the war between tyranny and democracy. And unlike in chess, there's no draw. You cannot have a tie. It's this, either we win and Putin regime collapses, or he'll continue his unending quest to destroy the free world. Gary brought up some
2: some points on how we got here. And I think it's because we compromised too much, frankly, over the two decades of uh, Putin's rule. And Putin is a personality that will push or take as much as he can get. And you can see the trajectory pretty clear, even in the early days of his tenure, when he starts to crack down on the oligarchs. Uh, to to gain power. And then he precipitates the Orange Revolution in Ukraine in 2004. He's the one that sets the conditions for the war against Georgia in 2008. He's the one that assassinates his opponents in the UK using nuclear-grade poisons. He's the one that attacks Ukraine and um, annexes pieces of territory and launches a, a major war. He's the one that assassinates people in Berlin. He's the one that uses chemical agents to poison folks in the UK that could have had devastating effects. He's the one that attacked US elections and uh, interfered in US elections. And he's the one that put bounties on US soldiers' heads and used illicit finance everywhere. So these moments along the way required a response, but we were victims to uh, a kind of manipulation that was easy for somebody like Vladimir Putin. who, As a KGB case officer, he fed on kind of the, the human nature of hopes and fears. The hopes were of of a strong relationship with somehow that we'd find our way back. We'd be able to work with Russia. We'd be able to accomplish something. And the fears of a devolving relationship with the nuclear power. And he manipulated that successfully to get us to not protect our interests. So we were always headed towards this confrontation. The question is going to be when. And now the bill is very heavy. The bill is being paid by
0: Ukraine because we didn't defend our interests. So, Alex, what's different now? You highlighted a number of these provocations that Putin has been doing over the course of the last two decades, including multiple full-scale wars, right? And the number of other quote-unquote special operations where he entered into Kazakhstan in order to prop up their dictator, where he entered Belarus to prop up Lukashenko, who of course now is one of Putin's only allies in this war. And the free world didn't really respond, right? I mean, there were probably some minor sanctions and, and, and a few minor responses, but there was no, nothing significant. And yet right now, we're seeing a moment of unity that we haven't seen really ever before. So what do you think is different today? Sure. So, you know, it's interesting. We were on this steady,
2: creeping trajectory towards confrontation, always favoring buying down risk in the short term, but mortgaging and leveraging towards risk in the long term that was the trajectory for for the bush administration the obama administration by the time you get to the trump administration it wasn't creeping there was a leap it was this idea that uh we were now somehow enamored with uh, authoritarianism we were enamored with a dictator we were open to some sort of cooperative collaborative relationship with putin and that we had driven a wedge between ourselves and our uh, alliance as well as the wedge internally to the united states with this hyperpolarization, So that that took this creeping scenario that was going to play out eventually into and leaped it forward by who knows how much. And that continued on really even late into past uh, Donald Trump's tenure, because we had an insurrection. I would say that was a, a kind of a tick mark, a key indicator that the US is distracted, the US is weak, this is my opportunity. And that's why you see the buildup of forces around Ukraine's borders start to unfold within weeks of that. And then you have all the catering to to Putin all the way through, you know, within a day of when he conducted his military operation that suggested now is the time to go. The U.S. is not going to do anything. One of the major parties is a supporter of Russia. And this is the the, that's why that explains the why now. So the why has been there for a long time. That was the whole trajectory. The why now is the fact that this seemed like an opportunity. Of course, in hindsight, that was a major, major mistake. In fact, those were superficial divides, whether that's internal to the United States or between us and our alliances. And what unites us, the fundamental values, our desire for a world governed by rules and, and law, and certainly our aspirations as embodied by the Ukrainians in their spirit to, to fight and, and for, for their freedom and their liberty, those things were much, much more important And we were just, we just laser focused back on our core values. And I think that's what's consolidated the world. So if you had the scenario for me, my concern for U.S. national security was that the U.S. would be weakened after this war, after if Russia was successful, that would embolden authoritarianism. It actually has been the exact, it, it looks like it's shaping up to be the exact opposite. This will diminish authoritarianism and the perceptions of authoritarian power and magnify
0: the strength and unity of the democratic rules-based order. So basically, you're saying that instead of serving to destroy the liberal world, this attack has, in fact, emboldened and united the liberal world. And I, I wonder kind of going back, right? So again, there have been other, any number of other provocations from Putin, but this one, for whatever reason, engendered an infinitely more powerful response, arguably is still insignificant response, but a much more powerful one. And so, uh, Gary, from your perspective, as arguably one of the most prominent Russian dissidents, what do you think is different about this particular attack from Putin?
1: I think that every dictator in history has eventually crossed the final Frontier, so the red line that that send a message to everyone in the world that enough was enough, and uh, Ukrainian war, uh, actually the latest stage of Ukrainian war because you know we have to remind people that Putin invaded Ukraine eight years ago by annexing Crimea and inciting violence in mm-hmm. the southeast of Ukraine, which ended up. With a small territorial gains, de facto small portions of Donbass and Lugansk uh, regions, but he already aimed for 10 regions. We remember the map that was published on Russian uh, on television, and Putin made personal comments about so-called Novorossiya, New Russia. So that's that's that had to stretch from Lugansk in the east to Odessa in in the southwest of Ukraine. So Putin always had a plan to dismember Ukraine or to ruin its sovereignty. Looking for historical parallels, I can say that for Putin, Ukraine was the same as Poland was for Stalin. It's an enemy standing on the way of, of, of the aggression. And um, for me, it was not a question uh, uh, um, if Putin attacks, uh, would attack Ukraine, it's when. And um, Alex explained that it's the, it's the, the process of uh, weakening American authority in the world. Actually, we can go even beyond Bush 43 to Bill Clinton, because at the end of the Cold War, when America was in the Venice of its global power, starting from that point, American presidents no longer had the same coherent foreign policy objectives. Because when we go back to the Cold War that started uh, almost immediately after the end of the World War II, Truman administration set up institutions and, and, and concepts that had been working for uh, American foreign policy for more than four decades, both with Democrats and Republicans in the White House. And this consistency... Gave America enormous strength in the eyes of people around the world, both friends and foes, and that was lost. American foreign policy was so consistent after the end of the Cold War became more like a pendulum, shifting from one side to another. You had Bill Clinton, then you have uh, Bush forty-three, then Barack Obama, Donald Trump, Joe Biden, and I think we we reached a point where American reputation in the world was shattered, not even weakened, shattered. And uh, Biden's Mistakes, and most notably the, the disaster in, in Afghanistan, convinced Putin that he could go against Ukraine. Time has come. And uh, um, it's also, for me, it's hard to believe that despite the facts that American intelligence proved its, its, its class and reported that invasion was imminent, neither America nor Europeans believed it. Oh, they said it would, ha- it would come. But saying is one thing and words are cheap. But they did absolutely nothing. And Putin, again, I think the first time in history, he prepared his invasion of Ukraine in plain sight. And while he was bringing his Pacific fleet to Black Sea, there were still discussions whether it's all psychological, whether he's trying to squeeze some concessions. He was preparing an invasion. And Russian television Never stopped campaigning against Ukraine, calling Ukraine a failed state that you know was there only for Russians to to come in, grab it. And maybe other countries, neighboring countries in the West can can pick up other pieces of territory. But Putin wanted Ukraine to disappear. Again, we can go into the reasons that also include his fear of independent, democratic, prosperous Ukraine the state where Russian language has been widely used with many Russians, that could send a wrong signal for Putin to Russian people, because democratic Ukraine shifting to Europe could um, be a White House for many Russians that were fed up with Putin's dictatorship. But bottom line, invasion was imminent. And um, I think Putin was emboldened by the fact that despite his preparations, the world leaders kept talking to him and also... I don't understand why they are surprised that he lied to them. Lying is is, is probably the most important trait of Putin's character, and he lied so many times that I think now, talking to any Russian official, we have to we have to impose the the presumption of guilt. They are lying unless they prove otherwise, because that's 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 their record. And uh, President Macron spoke to Vladimir Putin the day before invasion, and Putin as, of course, many Russian officials repeated that nothing was planned, though, as we know today, that the final decision to attack Ukraine was made on January 18th. So um, it's, it's a result of our complacency, lack of vigilance, and also, as Alex said, it's, it's psychologically. It's, the free world didn't want to believe it. So it's, it's a probably the most um, classical form of self-deception. No, 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 it, it, he would never do that because it, it looked bad. The, the list that Putin w- would never do is so long now that it's probably we we have to make sure that it will it will end these days and will not uh, be bothering us in the future. There's a lot of agreeing,
2: but I'm going to disagree a little bit with Gary. I think um, you know I'm working on my dissertation and I'm writing on the history of U.S. foreign policy towards Russia and Ukraine, and one of my conclusions is that we basically started to lock ourselves into a particular view with regards to um, how we manage Putin. And it was consistently ineffective. It was very kind of apologist, excusing his behavior and so forth. And I would say that Biden is less a product of, a, you know it's less that a product of a failed policy and more a product of the fact that he had blinders on or was looking at a policy towards Russia through the lens of 20 years of failed Russia foreign policy. So he was looking at a much, much more narrow set of options. He was not looking at you know, starting from scratch or saying, this is a guy that I can't work with. There's no point. Let's see about strengthening Ukraine. He was looking at through the soda straw of US policy. And that's, I think, why he, certainly he's the chief executive and he could have uh, shifted course, but it's hard to do that when there is a kind of a, 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 far, a long-term foreign policy direction, in this case, a failed foreign policy direction. and. Um, to break with that is tough. The other thing that I think is is important is it's interesting to hear somebody like Donald Trump talk about how things would have been different if it was only uh, up to him. Yes, of course things would have been different. We would have been out of NATO in a second administration. The U.S. may have even applied pressure for concessions to um, for Ukraine to, to Russia. I think that this the, there's a deep misunderstanding of the contribution that Trump and Trumpism had in in, uh, precipitating this this war. And it's it's this idea of, it offered uh, permission for Putin to do this with the belief that there were not going to be a lot of consequences associated with it. It's this idea that yes, there was a need, but the opportunity presented itself as a result of Trumpism and as a result of the fact that Trump captured one of our two parties and there was now a reasonable belief that the Republicans were not going to take a strong uh, action. My my concerns about uh, Biden-era policy is that, as Gary pointed out, the signs were clear that we were headed towards a confrontation. Uh, I mean, I was talking about this sounding like a crazy in November and December that war is all but unavoidable. Let's do what we can to avoid it because our options automatically get narrow uh, in war and Russia's going to use like nuclear sa- uh, saber rattling and so forth. And my concern is that we didn't do enough, and part of it is this: uh, there was a, a sense of defeatism that we couldn't do anything because Russia had nuclear weapons, that Ukraine wasn't going to be able to stand its ground, and uh, we still haven't actually completely departed from that. And wh- when when you mentioned the point that you know could we be doing more? Yes, we could be doing more. We don't have to be on our heels as much as we are with regards to helping Ukraine defend itself against wild, naked aggression. And that doesn't have to be things like no-fly zones. I mean, I think that there are other things we could do that are actually more impactful, frankly. We could let the Ukrainians establish their own no-fly zone because they're equipped with the things that they need to be successful.
1: Uh, Look, uh, Alex, I don't think, you know, you have to convince me or Uriel or probably most of our listeners about damage that Donald Trump caused to U.S., both domestically and internationally. And I think that's the reason why we all supported Joe Biden. Uh, against Donald Trump, because we wanted the return to normalcy in American domestic politics, but we also wanted to restore American leadership in the world. We wanted America to lead the alliance, NATO alliance, the alliance of free nations. So Donald Trump is no longer in office. And uh, while, you know, again, he's still causing damage, but I don't think that with all my reservations about the Republican Party that is still beholden Trump. As for Ukraine, majority of Republicans, a probably overwhelming majority, majority, definitely of their lawmakers, is now supporting very strong uh, measures uh, against against Putin's aggression. But it's Joe Biden who's in the office. And you're right. Yes, he was um, somehow a hostage of the failed decision made in the past. But that's why we have American presidents to to change this course and and to to, to make moves that could actually take us away from this swamp. And decision to meet Putin in in Geneva, horrible decision, a big mistake. That was Joe Biden's decision. So he met Putin in Geneva. He had two calls with him. And I think that those three encounters with Putin, they unfortunately played played the the role contrary that was expected. They emboldened Putin because somehow believed that America was not there to respond to his new act, uh, act of aggression. But if we just, you know, leave it behind us for a moment, because it's not what could be done. Tons of mistakes. Here, I think we agree. It's about what is to be done now, because we are reaching a point where this confrontation, in my view, with Russia is inevitable. And uh, you mentioned no-fly zone. I don't think the Ukrainians can, can impose it on their own. And frankly, I am really bothered by the arguments hearing, uh, that we're hearing from the administration and um, others both in, in America and, and in Europe that we cannot afford no-fly zone because imposing it means inevitable confrontation with Russia. This argument implies for me that our guarantees to Baltic states are worthless because how are you going to defend Baltic states if you are not ready for, to, to, to confront Russia militarily? So from my perspective, this, this confrontation is inevitable. And the question is, whether it happens on our terms now, because we can impose this no-fly zone, and then let's see if Russian pilots are willing to sacrifice their lives for Putin's craziness, and Russian generals willing to give these orders. Or it will happen on Putin's terms, and by that time, probably another half a million Ukrainian civilians will be killed. Well, I, I just think that
2: there's there there we may uh, not actually disagree. I just think that there are ways to do this. There are templates from the Cold War where uh, the U.S. and Russia would fi- fight it out, but fight it out through proxies. And Ukraine is not a small country; it's a country of forty million people. It's very capable, and it's recruiting. As you you watch the news, they've recruited a foreign legion of sixteen thousand troops uh, that could easily be expanded into an air corps. And that Air Corps could be equipped with the, the kind of weapons that they need to resist. And it's still...
1: Uh, Alex, 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 do I hear it correctly? Are you saying that, that there are volunteers that are joining Ukraine correctly, 16,000, many of them with great military experience? Some of them, I'm sure, are pilots. They will be flying or they will have a chance to fly American or French military jets to fight Russians because that's the only way to impose no-fly zone. Am I am I correct hearing that or that is, you, that, you is a, that is a conceivable option I think there are also things
2: that you could do with drones these uh, Turkish drones that have been highly effective there are plenty of drones that we could be transferring over to Ukraine now and they have surface-to-surface and surface-to-air capabilities. And that could start to even, but, even up but the score. we, we can.
1: We're, we're still not sending them. So we missed we, we missed, you know, we missed um, all the signs of aggression. There were six months window at least. And even now, I don't think that these drones are on the way to Ukraine. So before going into what we should be doing, because I actually think that's going to be a very
0: important question, why don't we first set the stage? So it is currently 4 p.m. on Thursday, March 3rd maybe Alex, you first, could you offer an analysis of what is the situation on the ground in Ukraine right now? What's going on? What's going perhaps well? What What's not going well? And most importantly, what are the Ukrainians missing most? What do they most need as they try to mount a defense against Russia?
2: So it's 11 o'clock at night in Kiev. And the city is, I haven't been on, on my phone, but the city is certainly undergoing aerial bombardments. So is Kharkiv, so is uh, Nikolaev, so are, are Mariupol. A bunch of cities are are being um, struck right now by planes and um, ballistic missiles. That's the way the Russians wa- are going to uh, plan on fighting this war. And th- they plan to wreck uh, Ukraine cities in order to, you know, air quotes, they're going to liberate their people by wrecking the cities. But um, in reality, this war has been pretty disastrous for Russia thus far for the first seven days. Russia fed its most capable w- units into into Ukraine under the impression that they would be coming in as peacekeepers and they would encounter li- limited resistance. In fact, they hit a wall. And as, they, as those frontline units started to get ground down by Ukrainian armed forces, including uh, by the equipment that we provided them, they also uh, started to run low on fuel and bullets and food, and uh, those resupply convoys we're getting devastated by Ukrainian armed forces. So basically, you have a stalled offensive to Kiev, you have little progress on the offensive against Kharkiv from the east, and you have the most progress, frankly, from the south, from the forces coming out of Crimea. But the Russians no longer have sufficient combat power to achieve their military objectives. Their military objectives were to, to swoop into cities, replace the political leadership with puppet regimes, and leave. Now, they can't leave because the Ukrainians would would topple any puppet regimes. Now, you don't have the combat power to take the cities. Now, you have to, and even if you do, you don't have the combat power to keep the cities. You might be able to do some smaller cities, like Kherson is actually a smaller city. But the bigger cities are going to be really, really difficult. Uh, The Russians are going to go to their strengths, which is these devastating fires and this is going to, the way it's going to play out for the foreseeable future until Ukraine gets the kinds of assets that they need, These the fills the gaps with regards to air power, to be able to strike deep into Russian air bases in Crimea, in Belarus, in Russia, destroy those planes on the ground, destroy those planes in the air, uh, helicopters, and then the, those
0: Iskander missile systems that are raining fire down on top of Ukraine. Gary, do you have anything to add to that analysis? And do you have any visibility into what... What do you think Putin and Russia are planning on for the next few weeks?
1: Just as Alex was speaking, I look at the latest uh, news from Ukraine. So uh, Russian planes bombed Chernihiv, 33 civilians killed, almost 100 wounded. So that's that's the latest. I agree with Alex's analysis, yes. The Putin's blitzkrieg failed. Actually, our Russian army proved to be another Potomkin village. So all these talks about the... Mighty Putin's armada that could crash anyone who's standing on its way, failed. Ukrainian army built a wall and it's, they stopped at a very high cost, but they stopped uh, Russian aggression. In the north of the country, so Kiev and Kharkov are still holding. In the south is not, you know, is not uh, uh, successful for Ukraine because Russia managed to use the, the, the base in Crimea and uh, um, the resources that were allocated there. So to attack from the south and also from the occupied part of the eastern Ukraine, so the, there's certain successes there, and most of the cities uh, they are just taken over. So basically, Russia controls now um, uh, southeast of the country, though they failed to to even to launch an invasion of Odessa. This is the the big port in south uh, west of Ukraine, and uh, um, recognizing this failure to. Um, take over Kyiv in, in two, three days and to um, impose on Ukraine a puppet government. Putin now is aiming uh, at uh, at civilians. So it's the, the latest report from Russia shows that uh, Russian planes are no longer uh, limited to the, the military uh, targets. So basically, it's open season. It's free hunting. And of course, they attack least protected uh, areas of, of Ukraine and um The goal is to create panic, terror, destroy the infrastructure, and um, use this chaos caused by the hundreds and hundreds of thousands, actually now millions of refugees moving across the country to limit the ability of Ukrainian army to resist the pressure. I also agree with Alex that Putin lost probably the most capable forces in the first few days, but Russia still has resources, and and they're bringing them in, and... um, it's no doubt, as Putin said himself to to President Macron, that he would not stop until Ukraine is subdued. So that's why we should expect this campaign, air campaign to intensify and Russians to to attack major Ukrainian cities, no matter the cost. So before it gets better, and I believe it will, it will get much worse.
0: Completely agree with that. So with that incredibly optimistic take, uh, but I think realistic to depressing. Um, Alex, what do you think the free world should be doing right now? A, what are we doing right now? What is the free world doing right now? And B, what should we be doing that we're not yet doing? Well, I wrote a piece about this in Washington Post. We should be offering a lend-lease program.
2: Lend-lease, it's a completely different idea than pushing through a limited amount of supplies, limited javelins, limited air defense We need to stop kind of this idea of just-in-time missiles. We need to flood them with everything. Everybody that's capable of carrying a missile should be able to employ it. Same thing with anti-tank capabilities. The other thing we should be doing is providing them all the logistical support they need. Right now they manage to uh, volunteer, large quantities of volunteers need body armor and helmets. They didn't expect to have to equip a hundred thousand territorial defense troops they need those desperately for the civilian population that's now picked up arms they need fuel they need ammunition they need humanitarian supplies medical aid and uh, on the weapon side this is particularly critical there are certain things that are there are difficult to do as i mentioned before the administration hasn't flipped a switch they're, they're still thinking about how you return to normal when in fact they should be thinking about we're in a cold war how do you avoid a hot war That's where that we should be, but they're not there yet. So what we should be doing that's palatable is providing him drones, very capable drones that could even the score. These are things that could strike deep targets, airfields inside Russia, inside uh, Crimea, inside Belarus, destroy those aircraft on the ground or in the air, destroy those uh, Iskander batteries that are raining fire. And I think we do this in unlimited quantities. And I think this has to happen right away. Gary, anything to add?
1: No, oh, it sounds like music to my ears. I think that's very important. Again, it's not yet happening, and I don't see any indications it will happen soon. When I say soonest, we're talking about days and weeks. I mean, that's that's when Ukraine needs it. And uh, I also think that it's we should recognize that we are at war with Putin's regime. The war was not of our choosing, but we cannot escape the war. And if we want to avoid the worst, We have to make sure that Putin's regime, uh, Putin's military machine is ruined. And it can be achieved by by combining measures, not only military measures that Alex so vividly described, but also economic measures, financial measures, political and ideological. There's so much can be done. Yes, sanctions being imposed, but still there are loopholes. It's not a total blockade of Russian financial sector. It's also, we are still yet to come to the point where Technology will be banned of entering Russia, and that will that will hurt the most critical parts of Russian industry. So it's also about isolation. I don't understand why ambassadors are still in Moscow. So recalling ambassadors and advancing a program of isolation, in Russia. Keeping bare minimum of diplomatic force, just you know, to keep relations. So that's that's also important, as well as kicking Russia from every international organization, including Interpol. You cannot do it in the United Nations, clearly. Russia is one of the founding members, but no one, no one stops America and American allies to push expulsion of Russia from from Interpol and other international organizations. And again, its tech blockade could actually have tremendous impact. So we we need to make sure that. Uh, Russian people will soon feel the results of Putin's aggression. And as of now, we see tens of thousands of people protesting on the streets. But this is this is like a political protest. It's against the war. It's not enough to overthrow a regime that has so much money, has invested so much money over years to, to build dominating police and, and security force. Yep. Now, we need the protest to become social economic protest. Yep. And then you will see millions of people on the streets. And at the same time, you know, with Putin's money frozen, he may not be able to sustain this police force. So our goal is to to make sure that the Putin regime will not survive this war because as long as Putin stays in power, there will be no peace. I think it's exactly
2: right. because right now you have these light protests. Uh, they're anti-war protests, but that we haven't baked in these economic sanctions that are likely to uh, inflict pain over the course of not days, but over weeks and months. And uh, those are the ones that are going to be biting. To the population, those are the ones that are going to be biting towards the government that has to be still be able to pay these Siloviki, these law enforcement troops, and they can't do that. And that plus the massive number of casualties that Russia suffered. Gary, I mean, I'm curious. Nine thousand by today it's more than that. Nine thousand dead Russian soldiers coming back. That's about as much as almost ten years of war in Afghanistan. It was about thirteen to fifteen t- t- thousand. T- t- yeah, thirteen to fifteen thousand.
1: Yes, but but don't forget, Soviet Union was twice as big, and many soldiers who died in Afghanistan they came from the southern republics. Yes. So that's why, if you look at the impact in, in lives for Russia proper, it's almost even now.
2: Yeah, that is going to be something difficult for the Russians to bottle up, even with their incredibly expansive repressive
0: tools. So listening to this exchange, we've been thinking about this a lot, but this really just comes down to time, right? I mean, we're talking about a scale of days, not a scale of weeks. You know, there's a Russian expression, uh, right? A spoon is useful in time for lunch. You know, having a spoon afterwards isn't quite as useful. And of course, as we're talking about all these weapons, by the time that Western countries actually, you know, have the wherewithal to send these weapons over to Ukraine, it could be too late. Uh, So based on this conversation, it really sounds to me like we're in a race against time trying to pressure Western countries, not only to increase their pressure on Putin's regime, but also, of course, to try to do everything we can to save Ukraine, to send those weapons to those people on the front lines who need them most. Well, actually, I want to say just, uh, I think it's a race to save lives. It's not a race
2: against time because in the first several days, it looked like Ukraine could fall. Ukraine's not going to fall now. It's just going to be how bloody it is and how many people are going to have to die before mm. either Western involvement or before Russia's military is rendered incapable of, of sustaining operations there. And that time is likely to also have an impact with regards to risk, because, again, as Russia fails to achieve its military objectives, Putin's going to get frustrated and more erratic and he's going to continue to try to double down and that's the recipe for much much expanded confrontation also so i think at this point he just may not have the combat power to roll into cities especially massive cities and secure those cities it's pretty close i mean another several days of these punishing losses certainly you could make that pretty declaratory right now it's it's up in the air but uh the ukrainians just have a deep will to resist that's indomitable and i think it's going
0: to carry them through To maintain their sovereignty. So, you know, on on that end, I've been following all these telegram channels, and you know, Ukraine has been using some really interesting tactics within some of these channels where they have channels up now targeting Russian mothers and others, and you know, showing images of basically having a database almost of either captured or killed Russian troops. And then conveying that information back to Russia to the best of their ability, obviously within an otherwise incredibly censored media environment. But trying to convey that information to day-to-day Russians so that they know what's happening to their kids. Uh, and I wonder. I mean, this is a pretty unique strategy. I, I've not, you know, I've not heard of ever in the past, essentially, of of a country that has been invaded trying to keep track of all of the killed or captured troops of the invader. Do you think this strategy could have an impact within Russia?
1: Eventually, yes. And numbers are growing, as Alex said, So, and uh, they might reach a critical mass. So 9,000 uh, out of what 170,000 or so that puts it allocated there may not uh, um, be critical mass to undermine their attacking capabilities, but messages going through throughout uh, Russia and just Making people aware about the losses, so that's that could be quite explosive. That's why Putin's regime is now doubling down on closing every independent source of information. It's not accidental that they just closed Echo of Moscow, uh, the the TV Rain, because they they go after any blogger who is trying to bring, you know, the true information from Ukraine. And that's why the Russian state human now is preparing the law just that will, you know, that's for the so-called fake news. So that any story coming from Ukraine that could contradict uh, state lies is punishable now by I think 15 to 20 years in prison. So they are afraid of truth, as vampires are afraid of daylight. Um, <laughs> and Ukrainians are pushing, and that's, again, more than happy to help them because it's important, you know, just to, it's not just for now, but it's also for the future to not to lose hope that one day our countries, I say Russia and Ukraine, could still live together in peace and maybe work together. Though it will be very difficult for Russians to regain the trust of Ukrainians after so many crimes committed on their behalf. So as we wrap up here, I want
0: to take a little bit of a step back. The title of this podcast is Winter is Here, with the understanding that right now, the liberal world, meaning the free world, is essentially at war with the authoritarian one. And Putin's invasion of Ukraine is not the only instance of this, right? I mean, it's the thing that has woken everyone up. But there are, of course, countless other examples of the dangers of authoritarianism. And so with Putin's invasion, however, there is this realization among Europeans, among Americans, and among other countries, actually, in Southeast Asia and beyond, That the risks are real. And so, as we enter this new world, or perhaps as we start recalling an older one of the Cold War, can you paint us a picture, both of you, of what you envision this world looking like? How can the free world defend itself and push back against provocations and offensives by? the authoritarian one, in a way that will actually be effective and will hopefully allow us to bring this, I don't want to use the word conclusion, but at the very least, try to improve upon the situation more quickly than, you know, the approximate 60 years or so of the Cold War. So Gary, you're the
2: co-host, I'll let you um, close, but I'll just say that we follow some of the templates that we see unfolding now. We do the things that seemed impossible before the war, but now seem trite and easy. We follow through on the anti-corruption measures that are now circulating, can't be drafted fast enough through the governments of the EU and the United States, and we've passed those. And that would be a good start to start to close off illicit funds that support all a lot of this kind of activity. I think that's one of the things to do. And certainly we're alert to the kind of higher degree of belligerence you know the warmongering and the use of force i think there's going to be less tolerance for that but we have to be equally alert and prepared to handle the condition setting type corruption and erosion of democratic principles and western liberal order in the case of for instance china repressing its uh population these types of things we have to take a stand we can't think about the kind of economic costs or the coercion that Russia is going to wield. We, we need to pretty much adhere to our principles and uh, not just leave them there as kind of rhetorical tools to roll out when it's convenient.
1: Yes, I agree. And I, I think that this unity of the free world behind Ukraine will not be short lived. And uh, um, it's something that, you know, that could um, build a foundation for us to build a future that will, will um, not have these elements or. Factors that played um, into the hands of dictators and thugs and terrorists, and also would-be dictators and illiberal forces within our society. I think people realized, watching this heroic resistance of Ukraine, that the freedom is worth fighting for, and people are paying ultimate price to resist, not only just for invasion, but the attack on their freedom. And also, it helped us as a society to see the dangers coming from the radicals, whether they're from the far right or far left. And it's not surprising that in many countries, America included, you saw the unity of them defending Putin, not so much now after all these atrocities that they could see, but clearly at the beginning, we saw the uh, the, the radicals on the right and the left united behind Putin. I think that's that's a warning. And that's probably will be, will it might be their last stand, standing, but it's something that, that it could alert people when they hear this propaganda again. So there are many things that, that are helping us now, learning from this tragic experience of Ukraine, to address domestic issues, to make sure that the, the fight of Ukrainians for their own freedom and for their country, because now this is the front line of freedom, will be more than useful for us to defend our democratic institutions, because the world in the era of globalization, that's what we're learning now. Fighting for democracy in Ukraine, it's also a fight for democracy elsewhere, including our home.
0: I could not think of a better way to close out our inaugural episode than that. So thank you, Gary. Thank you, Alex. We'll be looking to publish these episodes weekly, but please be sure to subscribe for a special episode this weekend with Ukrainian soldiers who are literally fighting on the front lines of freedom. And if you believe in our mission and want to support this fight, please go to rdi.org and consider donating. We're a 501c3 nonprofit, and every bit helps. Thanks again. I'm Uriel Lepstein, and I'll see you next time.